everybody. Good day, good morning, good afternoon. We have a next episode of Shift and Podcast, episode number 32, and we have a special guest, Andy Jordan. Andy, say a few words about yourself. Hi, everybody, and thank you very much for, uh, for letting me be a part of this podcast. Uh, my name is Andy Jordan. Uh, I'm the president of uh, a company called Refensian Consulting. Uh, we specialize in project program portfolio management uh, work with organizations, helping them to, uh, to deliver improvements to their strategic initiatives, as well as uh, project management offices, PMOs. Uh, I am currently based uh, on the island of Roatan in the Caribbean, uh, but I've got a lot of, of extensive uh, experience in uh, both Europe and uh, North America. Sounds great. Thanks. Um, most of my questions today will be focused on a very sensitive topic, which is project failures. Mm -hmm. So it's, when everything goes well, it's one story. But when something goes south and uh, you know, we have problems, then most people don't really know what to do. So I will really be interested in your experience in that case. So my first question is, how often do you see failures in projects which you consult and you, and you work in? I think depending on the, the definition of failure, to some extent, every project fails in some way. If you think about a project at the most basic level, we put together a plan or an idea that says, this is what we want to achieve, and this is how long it's going to take us, and this is roughly how much it's going to cost or how many people it's going to take, and these are the features that are going to be included in it. And there's so many unknowns when we do that that inevitably something is going to go wrong. We're either going to take more time or it's going to cost more money or take more people or we're going to have to drop a few features or even what the market wants is going to move on. So in some ways, something is not going to be achieved. I think the key is to then sort of say, okay, recognize that there's, Something has changed. It's a failure based on our original, uh, original definition, but we need to change it and move on. And I think that, that often failures get worse or problems get worse because people fail to recognize that need to evolve, that need to adapt, to, to just learn and adjust as the project continues. So, it, do you, so you're saying that failures is something which is happening normally and which we should have or... Did I get it right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's different types of failures, right? I mean, if you are writing a piece of software and the code fundamentally fails to do what you want it to do, you can't really sort of say, okay, well, well, that's a different outcome. That's the kind of failure we can live with. We'll just adjust our expectations. That's a failure that you have to do something about. But in many cases, a failure in one area is just an opportunity to do something different. At the end of the day, if, it is, uh, if, it, if we can't deliver what we said we were going to deliver in the time frame and for the money, we've failed to do what we were expected to do, but we can still turn that around and make it a successful project if we still meet our customer needs or if we still deliver something that's worthwhile. We just need to recognize that, that failure is sometimes about shades of gray, if you like, as opposed to just a simple black and white, yes or no. And by saying we, you mean all participants of the project, like pay, people who are paying for it and people who are spending the money, or you split those two categories? 
No, I think, uh, I think everybody has a role to play in, in project success and by extension in project failure. Even somebody who is involved in as just a team member, and just a team member doesn't mean they're not important, but somebody who is sort of in the weeds and doing the, the day-to-day work, they have a much different understanding of what's going on in the project, why things are going wrong, why a project is becoming a failure, if you like, than somebody who's paying for it. And they have just as much of a role to play in sort of identifying the problems and helping solve the problems, as does the person who is the sponsor, who is ultimately saying, you know, I approve this project, this is what I expect you to do to achieve. Everyone has a role to play in that. And I think not only does everyone as an individual have a role to play, everybody has to collaborate, has to work together, because this is something that, that it's a lot easier to solve problems. It's a lot easier to turn failure around once everybody is pulling in the same direction, once everybody is working together for the common good. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there is a chaos report, so-called by Standish Group. It's quite a popular document, and they reissue it every year. And yeah. a few years ago, maybe the last year, they said that uh, about 94% of projects, which looks close to 100%, uh, face problems or failures in some, of some sort, like cost overruns, time overruns, or just restarts. So they are claiming that almost all projects we have in this world, IT projects, they fail in some, in some way. And they claim that this is a terrible problem, this, that, that we can no longer, I quote them, we can no longer imitate the three monkeys, hear no failures, see no failures, speak no failures. So they, they say that we need to do something about it. But you sound like, what you're saying sounds like it's a normal situation, we just need to you know, learn something and just move on. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, Standish Group's not the only one who comes up with with similar reports. Uh, I've seen a lot of sort of you know reports where the headline is you know ninety something percent of projects fail, and mm-hmm. and it's good for grabbing attention. It's good for grabbing the headlines, and and heck, you and I are talking about it now, so I guess it works. There's no doubt about it. If you look at a project uh, and say success is simply about delivering on time, on budget, and on scope then a very high percentage of projects fail. Uh, But that doesn't mean that the projects themselves are bad. In most cases, it means that the scope, the budget, and the schedule, the timeframe that we were given up front were wrong. You know, I could say to you, my project for you to do today is to paint the entire city of Chicago green by five o'clock tonight. That's, you've got a scope for the project, the city of Chicago, You've got a timeline uh, and your budget is you. You have to do it. So if you don't do that, is that a failure of you in failing to do the project? Or is it a failure on my part by asking you to do something that is flat out impossible in in the first place? Clearly, that's an impossible task. It's a project that was set up to fail. It's an extreme example, but a lot of the projects that are approved in organizations, especially in software delivery, are all about that kind of project. They're set up to fail in the first place, not deliberately, but because we don't realize that when we say we want you to build this product using five developers and two testers in the space of three months, that we can't do that. It is physically impossible. So technically, yes, that project becomes a failure statistic, but it's not really the same as a a failed project. I prefer to look at things to say, okay, 
in the grand scheme of things, why did we approve a project? It wasn't because we wanted to deliver a piece of code with five developers in three months. It was because we wanted to achieve a business outcome, a business goal. We wanted to deliver a product or a service to a customer or to a group of customers that will meet a need that they have and by extension generate value for us, build revenue, market share, whatever it might be. If we deliver something that achieves that goal, who cares if it's a little bit lighter on features, a little bit late, and it costs a little bit more money to develop. We've still achieved a successful outcome. And that's something that reports like the Standish Group Scales report tend to miss. They fail to see the, the bigger picture. They just focus on the details. Mm. So it, it sounds like you're blaming the, uh, the people who are, who are uh, wrongly defined requirements, which are the management layer. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of accountability in the management layer. I think there's a lot of accountability in uh, the project management layer and allowing that to happen, although I realize that sometimes it's difficult to push back. But I think that, that there's a systemic failure, an organizational failure in, in many organizations that they fail to recognize that, that their success criteria of on time, on scope, and on budget have absolutely no bearing on whether or not the project actually achieves the results that were the reason why we invested in it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So there is no, it's not, there is no fault of programmers in those failures or technical people. Well, uh, I mean, I'm sure that there are technical people who make mistakes. There are technical people who try to cover up those mistakes, who don't always do things the way they should, who take shortcuts, who cut corners, who, who assume that something will work without testing it properly. There's a lot of blame to go around when failure happens. But I think that uh, there's too much focus on that kind of failure uh, and not enough focus on, on the bigger picture. I don't know anybody in any organization who comes to work every day saying, I am going to do the absolute worst job I possibly can. They're not coming in to try and write bad code or faulty code or ineffective, inefficient code. They're trying to do their best and they're human beings, so they make mistakes occasionally, as do all of us. But that's not the reason why 90-something percent of uh, projects fail. So what is the reason? So it sounds like we all want this project to not fail. We want to do it right. We're properly motivated to succeed, but still the majority of them just, well, not fail as we just discussed. Maybe it's not the right word for them, but they miss their deadlines that miss their budgets. So they, they go wrong. So and we, it, keeps, it's, it keeps happening year, year over year. So yep. why it's happening? So what do you think is the right, the cause of this? So let's go back to, to when projects are first thought of or proposed. Somebody's going to say, hey, we've got a problem or we've got an opportunity or there's something that needs to change. A project is about changing something. So we're going to do a new release of an existing product. We're going to create a new product. We're going to put a new system in place to get rid of some manual errors that are happening in our operations team, whatever it might be. Someone says, this is an opportunity to do a project. The next thing they'll do is some kind of business case or proposal and that's, that's going to be based on very little information. They're going to say, we know we've got this problem. Uh, we talked to a few people. We've got a few experts involved. We think that we can solve it if we spend $100,000, give me six people for six months, and you know, I'll deliver this, 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 and this, and it'll solve this problem. That's fine. I got no issue with that at all. It's a planning estimate. It's a planning proposal. It's a business case. 
it gets approved based on that business case. The problems then start in that we don't refine those numbers. If I say to you, I need $100,000 to make this happen, that $100,000 after the business case is approved suddenly becomes the total budget for the project. It doesn't become an estimate that we know is way out because we haven't done detailed estimation planning and actually figured out whether or not that $100,000 is $150,000 or $70,000 or whatever the real number is. We just say, okay, 100000 is your budget, go make it happen. We do the same thing with the scope. We do the same thing with the number of people assigned. We do the same thing with the schedule. We never go back and refine those estimates as we go. And that's something that is a lot of the reasons why we fail to deliver because we're guesstimating up front. We're coming up with these swag, scientific, wild, or anatomical guesses when we're doing our planning. And we're not going back and saying, okay, we need to do a better job now refining those estimates, making them more accurate, making them more detailed as we go. That piece is missing. And that's why we end up failing because at the time that we actually set those budgets we really don't know what we're talking about think about your own personal life if you decide you want to go on vacation or you want to buy a new car or whatever it might be you can set yourself a budget but you don't lock yourself into the first budget you think of on day one you do some research and then you say okay well if we want to go to this place on vacation or we want to have this feature in our car we're going to have to add a little bit more money to it or we're going to have to compromise somewhere else and we refine over a period of time as we do our research before we sign on the dotted line that's something that we expect to do in our personal lives but it's something we fail to do in business it's something we fail to do with our projects we just say okay this is how much we think it's going to cost this is how much we think or how long we think it's going to take and this is what we think we can deliver and that becomes locked in and we have to meet it and it's no surprise that we fail a lot of the time and why it's happening why why don't we why don't we refine our targets I think a lot of the issues are, are systemic, built into the way that organizations operate. There's a, a failure to understand the, the project management process, the project uh, planning process. So when we do our, uh, our high-level estimates, we say, you know, it's 100,000 plus or minus 50% or 100% or whatever, plus 100 minus 50, you know, and people will not listen to the the uncertainty part there they'll just lock in the number if we then try and change that and say okay you know if we think that a hundred thousand is going to get locked in let's make it two hundred thousand dollars because that way we're sure that we can get it done then it suddenly looks like an outlier from everything that's happened in the past and people think that you know the problem is people just don't know how to do their work properly they don't know how to work efficiently there's a failure to recognize uh, in the organization in the management level that the process itself is broken. They think it's the people doing the process that are the problem, and it's actually the process itself, and that's the piece that, that a lot of organizations are failing to recognize, simply because it's the way we've been doing it for years. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me try to make a hypothesis about this problem. Maybe people are afraid to come up with this uh, uncertainty, like you said, in the beginning, because in that case, just like you said, they will look like somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. But uh, later, running over the budget, running over the, the schedule, will not be punished as badly because everybody is used to see failures in IT projects. And that's why they don't do the uncertainty in the beginning, but they easily accept and admit failures later. Because like we know, 19-something percent of projects fails anyway. So it means that nobody will blame them, them for that. 
Yeah, I think you're probably right. And I think that same logic applies on the benefit side as well, right? That, you know, you can claim whatever kind of benefit you like, oh, give me the money to do this product and I'll generate $5 million in new revenue for you. It's going to be amazing. That's what goes into the business case. But then no one looks at it again afterwards. And oh, well, it's fully expected that we won't actually achieve that 5 million or we'll never actually bother tracking to see whether it happens. I think that that you're right. There's a lot more visibility. There's a lot more um, close monitoring of the business case, those initial numbers. But when we actually get to the execution piece, people don't monitor it as closely. And sure, there may be a report that says we are late, we are over budget. But to your point, well, so are 90 something percent of other projects. So no one's surprised. Mm-hmm. You know, you probably heard about this cone of uncertainty. It's like the, mm-hmm. uh, the paradigm that says that uh, in the beginning of the project, we have an uncertainty of like 300%. So yep. when you don't know anything upfront, you don't know exactly, well, you're just starting the project. In that particular point of time, you can predict the, let's say, the budget of the project with the, with the accuracy of 300%. Uh, but when I in my projects, when I try to bring up these numbers to my management sometimes, they just laugh because nobody can put those numbers in their business plans and their business cases. They cannot say that the project will cost us $100,000 or maybe $400,000. So from 100 up to 400000 that's going to be our budget. It's completely impossible. Nobody will sign on this, on this, on this plan. So right. maybe it's a very deep problem in the, in the entire industry. We just don't understand how software development works. We just, uh, you know, intentionally block, uh, intentionally program ourselves for failures. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and business cases in many organizations are not designed to truly be business cases. They're designed to be sales pitches. They're designed to get a project approved. So there's no benefit in saying, you know, it's going to take me up to $400,000 because you know full well you're never going to get the project approved. So instead you go, ah, it's $100,000. Nobody wants to hear that uncertainty, as you mentioned. And even if you put it down, you can't justify, you can't explain why it's $400,000 as opposed to three hundred dollars or five hundred dollars or whatever it might be simply because of that uncertainty. And then you sound like a fool when you're having the conversation with your manager and they're saying, well, well why are you saying it could be one hundred? dollars it could be four hundred? Why can't you be more precise? And, well, the reason you can't be more precise is you don't have enough information and you can't explain that very well. So I, I think you're right. People don't want to hear it. And, and certainly uh, sponsors don't want to go to CFOs or, or senior management and say, um, I, I need $100,000 for my project, but it might be $400,000. So could it give me a contingency that's three times the actual budget cost? It, it's not going to happen. You know, I've, I, I've been in a situation about six years ago, a long time ago, uh, when there was a small project, a small startup, and they wanted to develop the piece of software, which potentially could be as big as uh, Airbnb or something, the travel industry mm-hmm. for leisure industry. And, but initially, it was a small startup, and my team was supposed to be developed the piece of software. And uh, they were asking me how much it will cost, I mean, how big it's going to be. And I told them that initially, it will be close to $100,000 or so. And, and they said, that's, that's approximately the amount of money we have right now. And then we started to discuss features. And I told them, uh, and I said, here and there, there will be more features in the future. Here we'll extend it. Here we have a huge potential to add more and more features and, and software. And they asked me during the dialogue, they asked me, okay, so it looks like it's potentially could be a large project. And I said, of course, one day it will cost you millions of dollars. 
but mm-hmm. that will happen one day when you will have some, you know, revenue and so on. So yes, you have to be prepared to spend millions of dollars, but that will happen later. And the moment they've, they've heard that, they canceled the whole thing. They said like, you don't know what you're doing. You're just saying us a hundred thousand and then you're saying millions. It seems like you're trying to, you know, to rob us and you know, scam us somehow. And they canceled the whole thing. So that's my experience. Yeah, and it's not atypical. I, I know of an organization that it wasn't quite in, in the same financial constraints, but it was an organization that, uh, that had you know, billions and billions of dollars to invest in, in projects every year. It had one project that, uh, that was going to cost $30 million. Um, and if the project was successful, it had the ability to generate about $2 billion of revenue over the space of five years. And they were very concerned that um, we weren't able to say it's definitely a $30 million project as opposed to a 35 or $40 million project because it was too early on in the process. And I said, well, if the potential benefit is $2 billion, really does it matter whether it costs 30 million or 40 million the will to pay your willingness to invest in this project doesn't change because the benefits are so large that sure you make marginally less money if it costs 40 million than 30 million but in the grand scheme of things the number is irrelevant it may be 10 million dollars but it is completely irrelevant to the overall investment you still want to go ahead and do it you still want to make the commitment but they wouldn't sort of make that commitment without knowing for sure you know this is 30.3 or it's 32.6 or whatever it was they needed that precise number even though in that that grand scheme of things it was completely irrelevant similar situation to you where you know the benefits could be huge and the investment back into the product could be huge down the road but it that investment would depend on the revenue coming in but they got so scared about the the total cost they lost sight of that and what would you, what would you recommend to programmers and managers and people who are preparing those estimates to do in order to actually get an approval for 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 the uncertainty i would say that the the best thing they can do is always focus on the why why is this project being done? And it's not about anything that you're trying to achieve in terms of features. To go back to, to your software example, they didn't want a brand new piece of software that potentially could attack a market. They wanted market share, revenue, customers, you know, whatever it might be. That was the business goal. If you can keep the conversation focused on that, it becomes a lot easier to then have a conversation around cost uncertainty because it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things whether or not the cost uncertainty is at one end or the other as long as those business benefits can still be achieved. Now, if the benefit of doing something is a million dollars and the cost may be half a million dollars or $3 million, Obviously, there's a conversation that has to be had there. You know, you're not going to commit until you can do a more precise estimation of the cost. So you can say, okay, let's make sure this is going to be worth doing because the benefits may not be big enough to justify the cost if it's at the high end. But in most cases, have that focus, have that conversation around the benefits, the reason why the project is being done. And it becomes a lot easier then to deal with the, the cost uncertainty piece. Mm-hmm. And if they don't listen to your whys, to your explanations, if they just stay focused on numbers and still want you to sign on very exact and precise numbers, what do you do? You accept that or you just say, I'm not going to work in this project? Well, I mean, from my standpoint, it's a little bit easier, I guess, because I'm not an employee of these companies. I'm a consultant to them. So I can sort of say, look, you know, if you're not prepared to accept the reality of the uncertainty, mm-hmm. then, you know, I'm not going to commit to it. If I was advising an employee who's maybe not in our position, 
then I would sort of say to them, look, if they're going to force you to accept something that, that is still uncertain, then there has to be a trade-off to that. Think back to, to Project Management 101, where you've got the, the triangle of the, the scope, the budget, and the schedule. If something gives in one of those, you have to be prepared to give somewhere else. So if you're going to force me to work to a budget that I'm not confident I can meet, then you have to potentially give me more time to achieve the results. You have to accept that there's going to be fewer features in place or potentially that it's going to be a lower quality outcome because I can't force everything to be fixed. I can't say I will deliver exactly what you want, exactly when you want it, if you are also going to force me to do it for a fixed budget that I'm not confident about. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, it sounds, sounds reasonable to me. Uh, one of the reports, again, about failures, they say that the majority of failures uh, are coming from the management side. So only about 7 to 10%, depends on the reports, uh, blame programmers and technical people and engineers for failures of the project. The rest of them, uh, the rest of the percentage, the rest of the failures are put on the management layer, on people who are creating these estimates and, uh, and planning and, and failing to, uh, to do something, something else. So my question is, aside from planning, aside from estimating, what are the other sources of failures? What do you think? I think from a, a management standpoint, I think a lot of the failure comes from a lack of understanding and a lack of engagement. Um, a lot of stakeholders and sponsors and, and management layers think that their accountability for the project ends once they've done the approval, that it can then just go into the black hole until something comes out the other end of it. And I think that's something that is becoming even more true in the software development world as software uh, development becomes more and more agile in, in many organizations because many management layers don't really understand what agile means. It's just a bunch of jargon that, that is beyond their comprehension. Um, so they happily stay out of it. But when they stay out of the process, when they disconnect from what's going on, they're not able to make intelligent decisions. They're not able to guide the team to, uh, to avoid problems or to, to recover from problems. So they're not providing that support framework that projects need in order to ensure that the project is successful at the end of the day. The teams don't have the same level of context, the same level of understanding of the drivers behind the project as the management layers do. So if the team is operating without that management support, it's like driving the car with your eyes closed. You're not sure where you're going. You're not sure where the problems are. So it's not really surprising that you hit some of them. You know, um, again, I totally agree. But, you know, it's quite in one of the previous podcasts I was recording, uh, we were discussing the role of a project manager in traditional, in, in agile projects and more traditional projects. And it came up that in agile format, we don't have project managers. The entire mm-hmm. team is supposed to be responsible for the result. The entire team is supposed to be uh, self-managing somehow. So there is no dedicated role of somebody who is taking responsibility for the overall result. And here comes the question. So speaking about failures, do you think it's a good strategy? It's a good approach to remove the project manager role and put the blame slash responsibility to the entire team? Or we still need someone who will, who will know that, that it is his or her responsibility? 
I think that uh, I think the role of project manager in agile initiatives is still an important one. Um, it's not the same as the product owner. It's not the same as the scrum master. And it's not something that can be replaced just by having self-organized, self-empowered teams. I think that there is still a critical role for a PM in agile project, especially as those agile projects are becoming more important to the business itself. When they're just about delivering a piece of software internally within IT, it's less of an issue. When Agile is a delivery approach that is being used for business transformation projects or for the software to support those initiatives, there is an expectation that there's going to be a degree of oversight, a degree of integration with other projects, a degree of tracking and accountability and reporting that that has to come from the PM because the team doesn't have the time or the inclination to do that. And they don't have the, the skills or the background to, to do it as effectively either. So I think it's still an important role. Um, I think that, that a project manager can be the difference between success and failure on any project as long as they have the skills and the experience to do so. But at the same time, I don't think you can take a traditional waterfall project manager and just drop them into an agile project without any training or experience and expect them to either A, succeed or B, be accepted by the team. Mm -hmm. But um, you know what I feel recently? That people don't really like the word responsibility or the word blame or punishment or something like that. So they don't, they don't, want to see the negative side of the of our failures and instead they prefer to to speak about uh, you know about rewards and maybe about some uh support to each other and things like that so they're trying to many people around like consultants mostly and agile activists they are trying to uh to focus on like positive sides of of our projects and, and our you know <laughs> failures uh removing the negative uh, element of it. So do you think it's the right, you know, way to, to look at failures from a positive perspective in, in, in terms of responsibility of people who caused that failures, or we still want to like in a traditional way, like we've done 50 years ago, or we need to, to find the person who failed the whole thing and, and somehow, um, you know, do the retrospective with the focus on personal failures of particular people. Yeah. I mean, I'm a great believer that people want to do their best. Um, there are occasional situations where you have problems with sabotage, for want of a better term, where somebody deliberately sets out to have a project fail or deliberately sets out to, to do something wrong. But those are very, very rare. Um, generally speaking, I think people come to work with, uh, with an expectation that they'll have to work hard, but that they will do of their best and go home, you know, having been respected for, for doing a good job. If there's a failure that happens, we need to understand why that failure has occurred. We can't sugarcoat it and pretend that there isn't a problem that, you know, oh, everything's great. Never mind the fact that, you know, the project is sitting in the corner smoking and, and no good to anybody. You know, it, it's still a failure. We've, we've still got to acknowledge that. But I don't think it helps to say, and the failure was the problem of little Johnny over there. And let's give him a round of applause for screwing up six months worth of everybody's work. And yay, way to go, Johnny. That doesn't help anybody. And it certainly doesn't make Johnny feel any better. Um, so we need to understand as an organization, you know, what is it that went wrong? And more importantly, 
how do we stop it from happening again? But I don't think that, that people being held personally accountable for failure is necessarily the right approach. There may be a situation where we have to say, okay, there is a problem. This was why the project failed. It is specifically down to this individual who made a mistake, who didn't realize what they were doing or whatever it was. So they may need to be coached. They may need to go through a training program, a development program. They may be just in the wrong role and they may end up having to, to take on a different, uh, different role in the organization. But I don't think that specifically calling them out as the reason that something failed is going to help anybody and it's not going to prevent the problem from happening again. Mm -hmm. sounds sounds right well let me give you another example let's say we have a project in an organization and that particular project failed because johnny who was the project manager was not doing the re-estimates of the of the scope and of the budget like we discussed before and because mm -hmm. we ha didn't have those re-estimates in three months of work the customer was uh you know the customer realized that uh, the budget will be two times bigger than than they expected and that's why they canceled the project, but that was too late because they burned a lot of money. So it was a person, it was a personal failure, we can say so, of Johnny, who didn't do re-estimates for three months straight. But Johnny will say that, you know what, I'm working in this organization and nobody told me that this is my job, this is my responsibility to do those re-estimates, say, every two weeks. And the PMO, the office who is standing on top of me, who is supposed to teach me, train me, and consult me on how, or what is the process I should follow, on how I should deal with the re-estimates and with the customer. And that's why I didn't do that. So maybe we should blame you know, higher levels and people who are supposed to design the process which Johnny has to follow. For sure. I mean, I think we need to understand, you know, every time something goes wrong is what was the root cause, not just the, uh, uh, the symptoms, but, you know, do the, the fishbone diagram, the Ishikawa diagram to actually get to, to the root cause of the problems and understand the systemic issue. Was it a case that, that Johnny was told what to do and just didn't do it? Was it a case that the PMO uh, or whoever owns the project methodology didn't put that in place? Was it a case that the reason the PMO didn't put it in place was because their bosses, the sealer suite or whoever that is, said, oh, that's not important. This is where we want to focus. You know, there's probably a lot of blame to go around. I mean, I'm a, a project management uh, professional background. You know, that's been the focus of my career. So I have a tough time with a PM who says, I didn't do it because nobody told me I had to. If it's part of project management, then the PM should be saying, hey, I haven't done any re-estimates here. You know, this is something that I would expect to have to do. Why are we not doing that? And just challenge the PMO on it rather than saying, I didn't do it because nobody told me to. At the same time, I would expect the PMO to say, this is an important part of the way projects have to be done. I would expect leadership to say, it's important that our estimates are current and accurate. Therefore, please ensure that this happens. So there's a lot of, of issues that, that potentially could have contributed to that problem occurring all of which have to be addressed as part of the solution. But, you know, taking the cattle prod out to little Johnny is not going to help us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And um, again, quite an opinion. I keep, I keep reading in many places. Uh, the software experts say that no matter what the process is, no matter how you organize the, the documentation and the rules and, and, and uh, the formula of work, if the people are good people, if they, you know, very motivated and talented, they will do the right thing. 
So we don't need any process. Well, it, we may need it, but it's not important. What's important is to find the right people, the right Johnny, who will, by having a big heart, will know how to manage the project and will not forget to re-estimate or do what, whatever is needed. Do you feel it's the right attitude? I think that the core of success of any project is definitely uh, the right group of people being brought together to work on that that project. You can't create a team. You can only create a group of people. That group of people must then work together to evolve and become a team to actually sort of collaborate and want to succeed in order to support their colleagues and all the rest. So certainly having the right people individually and the right mix of people is critically important. Um, that can overcome a lot of process failures. I wouldn't go as far as to say that the process itself or the documentation isn't important. It depends on the situation. Um, I, I completely agree with the Agile Manifesto concept that you know, it is more important to deliver solutions than it is documentation. But there are projects where it is important to follow a rigorous approach, where it's important to have high levels of documentation, whether that's for regulatory reasons, uh, for audit purposes, you know, whatever it might be. But there's no reason why you can't uh, do that within an agile project framework any more than you can do it within a, a waterfall project framework. But that's not a replacement for the right team. It's just a way for the right team to work on more structured initiatives. Mm -hmm. And have you seen, have you seen in your practice um, teams that more often fail and teams which more often succeed in projects? And can you say, like being a consultant, when you join a team for consulting and you look at the team, can you say in just a few hours of conversation that did, that that team will most likely succeed and that one will most likely fail? Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, a lot of it is is down to attitude and, and mindset and just that, that team environment, if you like. If you've got a group of people who are committed to working together, who want to help one another through it, who care about the, the success and well-being of their colleagues, then you stand a much better chance of succeeding than if you've got cliques where people don't work together very well, where everyone's pointing the finger at somebody else. You, know, you can tell. And I would say that, that in most cases, that's not something that happens at the start of a project. I think that obviously when you bring a team of people together or a group of people together, it takes a while for them to gel and, and actually evolve into a team. But when you first start getting to that point, everybody is committed to success. When things go wrong, that's when there's the potential to undermine that teamwork. And, and it only takes one or two people sort of getting defensive or starting to blame other people on the team. And that can break down and then you get that fragmentation and it becomes obvious that you've got to make wholesale changes to the team or the project itself is going to fail. But what I will say is that a lot of that is sometimes or it's often driven from outside the project itself. It's not that the project team members start pointing fingers at one another. It's that somebody in the management layer or somebody from outside of the project starts pointing fingers at the team. And instead of the team um, resisting that cohesively, they end up saying, well, don't look at me. It wasn't my fault. It was his fault or it was her fault or whatever it might be. So a lot of that sort of catalyst comes from outside. So there's no way to solve that problem from the inside the team. We need to solve the problem with the environment around the team. I think we need to, I mean, it's a 
behooves project managers to create the kind of environment where people don't support that, uh, where don't sort of uh, tolerate that finger-pointing approach. Um, and PMs can certainly sort of try and, and nip the problems in the bud and, and try and prevent them from getting too the project manager, then it may well be that the idea of, uh, of solving it completely is uh, is to make wholesale changes to the team structure. But have you seen have you seen those transitions or resolving of those problems uh, being successful when the team now is in trouble and then something happens and the management is you know getting better and then we resolve that and the team starts working properly. Yeah, you certainly can recover. Um, I mean, depending on how bad it gets, uh, it can take a long time or it can take a lot of effort to, to get things to turn around. But there's very few situations that cannot be recovered from to some degree. You just might find that there's one or two people that have to be swapped out, bring in some new blood, uh, bring in some fresh ideas. Not necessarily because, you know, you have to take out the troublemakers, but it may be that just some people are so frustrated, so fed up, um, so disappointed with the experience they've had that it's not good for them or for the project for them to continue with the work. They're better off going to a different project or going back to work in a support or operational environment and bring in new people to, uh, to sort of help build up the energy again. And when they, when they hire you, for example, as a consultant for the team and you see the problem in the team and you realize that the actual problem is above the team on the management layer, do you go to the management layer and tell them that? Oh, for sure. There's, there's no point in sugarcoating the issue. There's no point in pretending that the real problem is somewhere else because all you're doing is solving the, or treating the symptoms of this particular project. You're not preventing the problem happening again. You have to help people to realize where the root cause of the issue is. And it's not in most cases because one of the management members is deliberately causing problems. It's just that they don't realize the impact they're having on the team or the impact that they're having on the project, on the work. So they need to understand, hey, this is what's happening as a result of how you're acting or the things you are doing. And here's a better approach that, that will be less disruptive for the team. Mm -hmm. And do you think the client or the, the, the company or the person who is sponsoring the project has to know about problems or potential problems in the team? Or it's better to keep the client some sort of, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a dark and only bring the good news to the customer? I think that uh, there's probably two answers to that, depending on whether it's an internal or external customer team. Um, certainly, if we're dealing with an external team, then we should probably do our best to, uh, to insulate them from what's going on. Uh, internally, there's probably a little bit more of a, an open door policy. But at the end of the day, uh, my personal belief is that unless uh, an awareness of the challenges and problems helps um, the customer's uh, ability to, have to support the resolution of it, then it's just noise. They don't need to necessarily hear all good news, but they should only hear relevant news. Um, and, you know, problems in the team are probably not relevant to them, uh, at least uh, early on. But it sounds like if we don't inform the customer, then uh, eventually the customer will know when the project fails. So maybe it's better to keep the customer closer to the inner circles of the project than somehow 
you know, get the customer on board as close as possible so that the customer will be more prepared for potential failures or maybe can affect uh, and resolve the situation somehow. If the customer can contribute to the solution, absolutely, they need to know what's going on uh, completely. Uh, if they can't contribute to the solution, then I would make a separation between the what and the why. I would happily tell them, this is what is happening on the project. This is the situation. We're experiencing a few challenges. This is how we're working to resolve them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And give them a heads up if there's a potential delay or potential loss of features or whatever it is. I wouldn't necessarily tell them why it is that's happening. Um, they do need to know we're going to be two months late. They don't need to know we're going to be two months late because there was a massive blow up between two managers and they couldn't decide which approach needed to be taken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Because it's a quite sensitive subject, you know, quite sensitive area where uh, it's always a question whether to inform the client and get the customer close to us and inform them about what's going on because the the, the, the thing you mentioned like re-estimating the the project it's not only about re-estimating just numbers it's re-estimating the situation right because when we started developing when we just planned to 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 make the project happen the way we wanted it to be uh, in three months the whole situation is different the whole environment is different it's a different it's a different story now and, and it's better to inform everybody around it maybe i'm just asking is it better to inform everybody or is it better to keep them on the same on the same page where we started. I think that um, in today's world, whether we're dealing with internal or external customers, the pace of change is so rapid that there's a distinct possibility that three months after you start a project, what the customer is actually looking for is different. So there has to be an awareness of that because you know, expectations, needs move on. And you know, if you just deliver what was asked for three months ago, you might be delivering the solution that the customer wanted three months ago, but it's no use to them today. But I think that that kind of conversation, that kind of, of awareness of what's going on in, in the customer base, uh, in the customer market, has to be happening uh, at an organizational level rather than at a project level. We shouldn't be looking just sort of at this project with this customer. We should be looking at all projects for all customers to have a better understanding of how the world is evolving. Certainly, there are conversations at the project level that are driven from that where, you know, there is an awareness that a rival launched something with new features that no one had ever seen before. So, hey, you know, let's have a conversation with our customer about, you know, hey, the next version of this, maybe you're going to get that added in or whatever it might be. There's, there's relationships between those conversations. But I don't think we should only be having them at the project level. Mm -hmm. And in general, do you think we should fail fast or we should try to fail? We should not, we should try not to fail for as long as possible. There are two approaches for that. Sure. I think generally speaking, uh, fail fast, fail cheap. Um, there is uh, exceptions to that depending on the type of project that we're dealing with. But as a general rule, um, I would much rather um, know I was going to fail um, as quickly as possible before I've committed too much money to it or too much effort to it or too much energy to it um, and then move on to something else. Um, the problem with that potentially is that it only works in an environment where you've got a leadership team that is prepared to pull the plug. Um, I've seen a lot of projects that clearly failed fast, but where they were continued to be invested in for a significant period of time simply because um, the people who were signing the checks weren't prepared to say, all right, that money's gone. They just thought they'd keep throwing more money at it and hope it would turn around. 
And maybe it's related to the problem of politics, because in most cases, in some cases, in most cases, uh, the, the software projects are not being uh, run for the sake of uh, deliverables, but mostly for the sake of just being the sources of salaries and, uh, and expenses for the entire organization. So people need projects to not to fail, but to keep going, keep running because there are many, many people involved. They all get salaries, they all get paid. We have expenses. We, we live our lives while the projects are alive. So we, not, we don't want them to stop. We don't want them to claim failures earlier. It's better for us to keep them for as long as possible. And in the end, as we know, we're not gonna be blamed for failures because most projects fail. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, there's probably an element of that. Um, I find it pretty sad if that's the case. Um, sure, we all have lives to lead. We all have salaries that we need to, to be able to live those lives. But the, the reality is our employers, uh, the organizations we work for, uh, don't exist to look after our personal lives. Um, they exist to support their investors or shareholders or stakeholders or, or whatever the structure of the organization is. And if you look at those organizations at the most basic level, they do two things. They do operations, the day-to-day -day stuff, and then they do projects. And the projects have a fixed budget available, a fixed level of investment available to them. Um, and you have to generate the best possible return on that investment because that's what keeps the organization running. Uh, and if you're allowing some of your management team or some of your supervisory levels to take a subset of that budget and invest it in a way that is not only not going to optimize the return on investment, but potentially generate a ne negative return on investment just because we don't want to cancel a project and potentially have to lay people off or you know leave people uncertain of their jobs. And you know, that's fundamentally a failure in the way the organization is being run. Yeah, that's true. And um, maybe a personal question to you. So, um, have you been personally involved in projects who like failed, like seriously failed? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I've been involved in in some fairly significant uh, projects that that have uh, failed in a very dramatic fashion. I was uh, I was with a department of uh, of a major insurance company that went from uh, 150 people to uh, to 12 people in the space of about four weeks because they cancelled a major initiative. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's part of what makes all of us, you know, the people we are. And how do you recover from that? Or maybe how can you, would you recommend something to our listeners? How would you, how do you recover from so those major failures and move on and, and join the new project? I think you have to recognize that it takes time. I mean, it's, it's a form of grieving, if you like. I mean, I, I don't mean to, to make it sound overly dramatic, but it's not something that you can just shut the door on and forget about it. It takes a while to recover from it. And uh, you need to give yourself that time and space and, and distance for it to happen. Um, I think you also have to make sure that you don't take it personally. Um, you know, everybody who has been working on projects for any length of time has experienced a number of failures. It's not your fault. It's one of those things that happens. Uh, even if you made a mistake, it's not your fault. It's not something that, that you did deliberately. It's just something that happened and you have to, uh, you have to learn from it. You have to try and avoid making the same mistakes in the future, but you can't sort of blame yourself because then it, it does prevent it from moving on. And uh, to go back to, to the comment you made a couple of minutes ago, 
all of us are, are working to support our personal lives, right? We are, we're not working because it's the best thing we can imagine to do with our time. We're working because we need to earn money to live, to be able to, to do the things that are important to us with friends and family. And um, so that's the focus that everybody should have is on, on protecting that and, and not allowing, you know, the past failure to prevent future success. Okay. Sounds, sounds reasonable to me. I think I, I'm done with the questions. It was really interesting to know your opinions on that. Perfect. Thank you. I, I just hope you not to have any more failures in your professional life. <laughs> well, I hope so too, but I, I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think we're, <laughs> we'll inevitably have our share. Okay. I think me too. But we will, have, we will learn from them. That's what I got from you today, which was yep. really for me. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Diego. I really Bye -bye. appreciate it. Yeah. Bye. Bye.